Good morning, church. Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 8. If you're joining us for the first time, we're studying through this book, a great story of God's liberating his people from their bondage in Egypt, in preparation for the great exodus that Jesus Christ would lead for all his people out of our bondage to sin and death and the devil. And the New Testament lets us know that Christ was active in leading these people out as well because these were the people. This was the line through whom he would come. God had promised to protect this line and bring this Messiah. Every passage of Scripture has a point, but it has an endless number of applications. So we're in, our, in the fourth plague. Each of the plagues makes a point. God is God, Pharaoh is not. That's the point. The Lord is the Lord. He is our God. He is our Redeemer. And yet we've been turning the crystal, the, the diamond of God's redemptive work in different ways and applying it in different areas. And today we look at what um, Moses is called to do and we find it in a pattern for ourselves. He was called to take a stand against the compromise of liberty. And uh, we are called to do the same. The question facing us is who is that Pharaoh in your life or in your world? Who is that Pharaoh against whom God is going to demonstrate the power, the liberating power of his gospel? With each of these plagues, even these dark signs, we have trained ourselves to expect the revelation of good news, to expect the gospel. We can expect the gospel even among a swarm of flies. Look at Exodus chapter 8, verse 20. That's the second book in the Bible the book of Exodus, chapter 8, verse 20. <clears throat> then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into the servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. And Moses said, It would not be right for me to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. And Moses said, Behold... I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. 
Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord, would you open our eyes? Would you open our hearts to understand, to respond to, to be converted by, to worship in response to the good news of a sovereignly powerful gospel that grants liberty to the captive. Empower us, Lord. Empower those of us who know you as our Lord and Savior to take our stand. Empower those who have never yet put their faith in Christ. Freshly empower them. Empower them to believe, first of all, and then cause them to join this blessed army, these soldiers of the cross who stand for liberty for the captive. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake and God's people said together, amen. 1864, the Emancipation Proclamation was declared, was legally stated that all slaves were free. But that freedom did not occur immediately. It wasn't even realized by most of the slaves, as our fellow Memphian Shelby Foote noted, most every slave could repeat with one Alabama slave who said, when they asked, I don't know nothing about that Abraham Lincoln fella. They say he sought us free. I don't know nothing about that either. It was declared that he was free. It was declared that they were free, but it took declaration in person. It took brave people standing for freedom, standing against injustice standing to make sure slaves were free. It is a phenomenon that those who have been freed sometimes not only don't understand it, haven't heard about it, sometimes they fail to live in it. That's true of the New Testament. The New Testament is constantly reminding us that we have been freed from our slavery to sin and death and condemnation and shame. And yet it must constantly remind us that we are free and constantly remind us that others need to be freed from their captivity. Anything, anything that puts in bondage one made in the image of God, that is our task to declare freedom to the captive, to the least of these. That's what Moses shows us in this passage. And he shows us the gospel motivation for it. He shows us that we are called to take our stand against every force, spiritual or physical, seen or unseen. We are to take our stand against every force that holds the least of these in captivity. 
And here's the motivation. Begins in verses 20 and following, 20 to 23, 20 to 24. We stand against any force that holds an image bearer of God in captivity because the gospel promises a flourishing life. The gospel promises a flourishing life. Now, where do I get that? It's in the text, and it's probably been in the text before, but here it is absolutely clear. Because you notice, here's a, here's a repetition of the cycle. Remember, I said that there are three cycles of three in these first three groups of, 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 of miracles, of plagues. Moses first goes to Pharaoh in the morning, and then he goes to him in his palace, and then he goes, and then the, then the plague comes suddenly if Moses, if, when Pharaoh continues to rebel. And so here Moses is going to Pharaoh while he's having devotions at the, at the river Nile, worshiping the God who is supposed to protect the Nile and supposed to protect them from frogs and supposed to protect them from gnats and eventually from flies and even death. And here is, here is Pharaoh doing homage to that God. And Moses comes to him and he says, if you do not repent, if you do not obey God, the true Lord, our God, their only Redeemer, if you do not obey him, he is going to send swarms of flies. God has been giving Pharaoh plenty of time to repent. He's been giving him room to repent. This is the fourth plague, but this is the sixth time God has given Pharaoh opportunity to repent and obey the Lord of heaven and earth. He says, if you do not, this time the Lord will send swarms of flies. Now, these are not just house flies, the ones we're still battling. These are not just nuisances. This is a plague. Swarms of flies, swarms of dog flies. Philo, the ancient writer, tells us dog flies were enraged. When they were enraged, became blood suckers. They held on and bit hard and did not let go and really loved to attack the eyes. This was a plague. It was a plague that only came on the Egyptians. See, for the first time, we get this strong statement that this is not going to happen to my people. I'm going to send it on you and your servants and your people. But I will set apart, verse 22, the land of Goshen where my people dwell. It's probable that God had done this with the other plagues as well. Because when he, when he purifies the water, he says the Egyptians were able to drink again. When he releases them from the gnats, he says the, he took the gnats away from the Egyptians. He took the frogs away from the Egyptians. It's probable that, these, that the, the people of Israel were protected from these, from these other plagues as well. But here is no doubt. God says, I am protecting my people. They will continue to flourish albeit under slavery, but they will flourish as opposed to you who are going to be set upon by these blood-sucking flies. The point is made here. The point is made about the kind of life that God brings. He doesn't free us from all suffering. Now, that's the error of the prosperity gospel, which is an evil, which is no gospel which says that if you just have enough faith and if you master the mechanics enough, you can learn how to manipulate God and you can get whatever you want materially and in terms of health and you'll never have any other problems. It's interesting to see people, even as prominent as Benny Hinn and Condi Hinn, repenting of that kind of gospel 
these days. That's not the, it's not that. But we can say, as the Bible makes the point, that life goes better with Jesus. Life is better overall with Jesus. The, the, the Bible makes that point in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 40, for instance. God says, I have given you my laws so that life will go well with you. It's not that God said, you know, my people are having entirely too much fun. I'm going to give them some laws. It is instead, I am giving them laws so that life will go well with them. In Deuteronomy 4, he says further, and when people look at them, the surrounding nations look at them, they are going to say, who is their God? What kind of nation is that that has a God who gives them laws like that? And Psalm 37 says it's, it's better to have little to nothing than to have the agonies of the unrighteous, to have the agonies of the life of the wicked. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, when he's talking to his, to his disciples, he said, why are you so worried? Why are you literally, why are you spinning around? You're spinning around like the people around you. Like the people who are not believers, you're just spinning in circles. You have no excuse for that because you have a heavenly father. He knows you have these needs. He provides everything that you need for food, shelter, and clothing. He is the one who provides for you. He is, he, you are his, you are my little flock. Do not fear. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I came to give you life and not just bare life. I've come to give you abundant life. We can't base our theology on, on science, but science corroborates this idea that life goes better with Jesus. People who are the, those experts of brain science have given various studies to show the health benefits of of. Of, of religious people, it's people who follow the Lord, we would say that overall their life is of a, of a better quality. There's, there's studies showing lower blood pressure, stronger immune systems, mental illness or anxiety. Now, as someone who struggles with two of those three, I can tell you, you're not going to be spared of everything. But I can tell you, struggling with two of those three is easier with hope of the gospel than it is without the hope of the gospel. Harold Koenig, a professor at Duke University, gathered all of those studies that uh, showed the health benefits of following the Lord, specifically the health benefits of becoming a member of a church. And he said they all demonstrate that the only social involvement that has any direct bearing, any measurable influence on your overall well-being is membership in a church. Oh, that amazes us. It shouldn't amaze us because God has told us life goes better with Jesus. Sometimes we don't, we don't believe that. I was reading recently an autobiography by a friend of mine about her flight from the Lord and her rebellion against her parents, which went on for decades. And she eventually came back to Christ and, and her husband did too. And when she came back into her family and reconnected with her family, her youngest sister was resentful. And, and they couldn't figure it out at first. And finally, the older sister asked the younger sister why she was so resentful. And she said, it's just not fair. 
It's just not fair. You went off and had all of that fun, and then you got saved, and now you come back, and you've had all of your fun, and now you get to go to heaven too. It's just not fair. I've got to stay in this home and have no fun, all for the sake of going to heaven. My friend told her little sister, Oh, I pretended to have fun. But I can tell you it was miserable every day. I thought it'd be fun to have lots of money. I thought it'd be fun to have the immorality that I want. I thought it'd be fun to experiment with the drugs and alcohol and the, and the fast life I was living. But I was miserable every day. I was. She said, here's the secret. I was jealous of you. Life goes better with Jesus. And that's why we stand against those forces and even against those people who would, who would hinder those around us made in the image of God who could flourish in their lives. We stand against every force and we stand against every, every system and every person who would hinder another person who made in the image of God from flourishing. Secondly, I want you to notice that that we stand against those forces because not only does God promise a flourishing life to those who follow Christ, he he also provokes, he, he he has this power. The Lord Jesus has this power to provoke courageous worship. Not just occasional worship, but but worship that actually could cost you something. You see, in verses 25 to 28, Pharaoh tries to cut a deal with Moses. And it could be be attractive. These people have been in bondage for 430 years. And Pharaoh says, well, I'll tell you what you can do. You can worship here in, in, in Egypt. Now, Moses knows that's not going to fly. He knows it's not going to work because the Egyptians hated Israelite worship. Because Israelite worship demanded the sacrifices of animals. And the Egyptians worshipped animals. God of Apis was, uh, was related to rams. And God of Isis was related to cows and, and so forth. There was a God for every animal. And that explains why the Egyptians who were who they were. We become like our gods. They became like animals because they worshipped animals. They didn't want to shed the blood of any animal. They didn't have trouble shedding Israelite blood, but they didn't want to shed the blood of animals. So Moses says that's not going to work. It's just irrational. Furthermore, it's not going to, it, it, it's, it's not going to work because it doesn't honor our God. Pharaoh tries another deal, tries to cut another deal. He said, I'll tell you what, you can go, you can go outside and worship, but don't go far. Well, Moses, Moses had already told him we're leaving. And when we leave, when we say goodbye, we're never going to say hello again. That's this, that's this, I, this idea behind the saying of a three days journey. It's not like we're going to be gone for three days and we'll come back. You can mark it on your calendar. It was just a manner of speaking. We're going to be gone on a long journey, one that's so long you'll never see us again. We're going, when we leave, we're going and we're not stopping till we get to the promised land. Now, I'm sure Moses got some pushback from his own people to say, hey, this is the best deal we're going to get. This is a compromise. We can go outside, we can worship, we can come back in. And God says, no, that's not going to work. It's not, we're not going to allow that because that's not good enough. He tells Moses in verse 20, in verse 20, 25, go take your stand. 
Or verse 20, go take your stand. Rise up, we have here. Take your stand. Take your stand against Pharaoh and tell him, my people will worship freely because I am the Lord. Now, some of you say, I still don't get it. I still, I still don't get why just because God is the Lord, they would want to worship him this way. That they would, they would, they would give up a slight bit of freedom and, and stand so strong that they, they didn't even have a slight bit of freedom. Just like our brothers and sisters in China now who have refused to bend the knee to the dictator. And they said, you either worship with this, this offer that we're giving to you or not at all. And they said, you'll never stop us from worshiping and we're never going to bend the knee to you. Why would they do that? What explains that insanity? What explains why people would come to morning and evening worship? Why they would disrupt their schedules? Why they would, why they would uh, give away their lives and their money for worship? What explains it? Well, you know, the context of a scripture is part of the text and the context of of this, of this scripture, we can find also in Deuteronomy chapter 7, for instance. You don't need to turn there, but in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God is reminding him, reminding the people of Israel of everything that was true at this place, but it's after they'd been liberated. And, he, and he's anticipating a question, a question from them. Why did God choose us? Why did God choose to make us his people? And, and why did he choose to lead us out of Egypt. God anticipates some of their answers. He says, you might think it's because you're more numerous than anybody else on the face of the earth. Well, that's not true. You may think it's because you're better than other people. I can tell you that's not true. You, you may think it's because I needed you. You know, I had this spot on the team and I, I, I needed you in that position. And so I recruited you into my family. It's not true. Deuteronomy 7 says the same thing the New Testament says. The only reason I chose you, Israel, is because I loved you. I just decided to love you. That's, that's true in the New Testament as well. Colossians 1 or Ephesians 1. I, I, in love, in love, he predestined us. In love, he chose us before the foundation of the world. He set his love on us before he ever made the world. Sometimes we can think, you know, God is really lucky to have me. Or, you know, what would God do without me? I'm such a smart, well-trained, godly, consistent person. Well, God knows you better than that. You were never chosen. You were cho God chose to love you and to love me. He chose, as many here as have received Christ as Lord and Savior, the only ex explanation for why you have, you have believed on Jesus Christ is because before the foundation of the world, God said, I'm going to love you. And setting his love on you, when God does something, he can't undo it. And God set his love on you, he can't undo his love. That's why you worship when you realize that God loves you as much as it is cosmically possible to love you, when you realize that God loves you more than the preservation of the life of his own son, 
When you realize that God has loved you and he cannot unlove you into all of eternity, when you realize that, when you acknowledge that, when you let that soak down into your heart of hearts, you will never again complain about going to worship. And you'll never again let things, lesser things, crowd out worship. You won't wonder why you worship morning and why, why we bookend the day with worship. Why God demands one whole day of worship. It'll be a blessing. It'll be a blessing. A friend of mine, we, we, we raised a, our boys together and they, were, they played sports together. And, and we got to that point where they, they went outside of the, the, the Christian school and started playing in leagues and, and uh, more competitive teams. And uh, we had a Christian coach. He's a very good friend of mine. And, and uh, he said, you know, to, to get an edge on things, we need to start participating in some Sunday tournaments. And they won't be every week, but occasionally. And so my friend and I decided that we would just have a talk with the coach ahead of time and say, we don't want to, we're not judging anybody else and what they decide to do. We're not judging you as a Christian coach. It's just that we're choosing not to do that. Now, if you get in a bind and you have to forfeit or something, call on us and we'll run our boys over here. But over it, just, just know ahead of time we're not going to do that. And if you need to cut us from the team, we understand that too. Well, my friend, the coach understood, well, that's George's vocation. That's his day. He, I can understand that. But he laid into my friend. How dare you judge me? How dare you come down and look down on me for coaching on Sunday? That's not what I said. He said, here's what I said. Here's what I'm trying to say. Jesus set me free from such a life of hopelessness and emptiness that I love worshiping him morning and evening on the Lord's day. It's a blessing to me. And if he said blessing once, he said it a hundred times. It is a blessing to me. It is a blessing to me. I'm not keeping this day to judge anybody else, to think I'm better than anybody else, to keep it in misery. I'm doing it because Jesus has blessed me. It's a blessing. Maybe that you have some pharaohs in your life that are called schedules that you need to lean against that are keeping you not from, you're not earning more favor with God by worshiping. But what you are missing out on in regular worship is the retraining of your soul, the retraining of your heart to believe the truth as opposed to the lie that the world is trying constantly to convince you of, that your worth is only found in what you have or what you do or what you accomplish. And God is trying to retrain you to understand that you have been loved from before the foundation of the world and you can't be unloved. And so he declares his faithfulness to you in the morning and his love at night. It's a blessing. Maybe you need to reform some scheduling power that you have or or the way you consume on the Lord's day to free up other people to experience the same. Not producing, not, not uh, prescribing some kind of legalism, but you before your Lord ask, how can I, how can I participate, take a stand in a way that brings a blessing to my family's life and to those around me relative to worship. The third thing that moves us to be those who stand for the liberation of the least around us is we do it because 
our Lord Jesus provides redemptive grace. He provides redemptive grace. Now, I want you to look at verse 23. He says, I will put a division between my people and your people tomorrow. This sign shall happen. Now, that's the way our translation translates that word. But but, uh, we could translate it this way. Thus, I will put a redemption between your people and my people. Not a division, but I will put a redemption between your people and my people. A redemption. Now, that's a powerful statement. It's a, it's, a very, it's a very startling image. I will put redemption between your people and my people. Here's the way it will be fleshed out later in Israel's history. Moses will be told, I want you to set up some, 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 some worship practices that will show my people that I'm the one who saves them from their sins and sets them free from all that would oppress them and, and, and prepares them for the holistic salvation of Jesus Christ. Here's, here's some things I want you to do. There are going to be sacrifices every day of the week, but I particularly on the Day of Atonement. You can read about this in Leviticus 16. On the Day of Atonement, I want you to do this. I want you to take two goats and... We won't talk about the scapegoat for now, but the, the, the one goat, I want, you to, I want you to slit its throat. It's going to be a violent thing. I want you to take that blood. I want you to pour it all over the Ark of the Covenant. Specifically, the Ark of the Covenant was a golden box, and in it it had the law of God. And on top of that box where the, the, where the, where the angels touched wings, it was called the mercy seat. And, and blood was to be poured all over that mercy seat. And here was the image. That when when God looked at his people relative to the law, if he looked at them just as they were relative to the law, they would be condemned because none of us ever keeps the law. And they didn't keep the law. And so he said, what I want to do is I want you to put blood of an innocent lamb over that that mercy seat, and, and then I will not be able to see my people relative to the law because of the blood. I can only see them through the blood. And you, you can see now how that anticipates the work of Christ. There's only one way you can go to heaven. There's only one way you can be reconciled with, with a holy God. You and I are, are born sinners and we, we sin every day. And so the only way for us to be reconciled to God was for Christ, the Lamb of God, to live a perfect life in our place, to die the death that we deserve, for the wrath of God to be poured out on Him, to shed His blood as a sacrifice of the last Lamb. And when you ask Christ to be your Savior. God takes what He accomplished on the cross and the shedding of that blood and He applies it to you and thereafter He can no longer see you relative to His standard of righteousness except through the blood of Jesus. God is anticipating that when He says, I am putting a redemption between my people and the Egyptians. It is not because my people are better than the Egyptians. The only thing that distinguishes my people from the Egyptians is that my redemption is on them. My blood is on them. Now I want you to notice 
you don't have to turn there, but in Deuteronomy chapter 10, I already gave you the quote from Deuteronomy chapter 7. I chose you because I loved you. In Deuteronomy 10, he says, now, I want, you to, I want to remind you why you should worship me and how your worship is to make its way out of your private life and into the world around you. I want, not only am I going to put a redemption between, I'm not only going to redeem you and you're going to experience mercy, but I want the people around you to experience mercy through you so that they might come and worship me as well. Here's what he says. Here's the way he says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Circumcise your hearts. Be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner or the immigrant. He gives food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were... Also, sojourners in the land of Egypt, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name, you shall swear. This gospel is so great. When God sets his love on you, he not only changes your whole life, causes it to flourish. He not only provokes you to worship morning and evening on the Lord's day and in your private devotions. This gospel is so wonderful and the supply is so limitless. He says, I want it to spill out from you in word and deed. You find the least of these in your society. You find the least of these in your city. Who are they? You find the fatherless. You find those who are not receiving justice. You find the widow. You find the immigrant. You find the poor. You find the one who's being despised because of race. You despise, you find whoever it is, the least, considered to be the least in your society. And you come close to them as I have come close to you. You imitate Moses, not just Moses. You imitate the one Moses anticipated. You imitate the Lord Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, equal with him, left his throne to come down and out of love for God, took a stand, literally took a stand on this earth to say, I am bringing liberty to the captive. Whatever that captivity is. And I want them through you to know that my gospel brings flourishing. My gospel brings courageous motivation to worship. And my gospel brings redemption in every part of their lives. What a privilege we have to represent the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would, well, we believe, but help our unbelief. Would you freshly capture our imagination with just how much we have been loved? It's going to require for many of us you reminding us 
just how desperate we were without you and how desperate we remain to be without you. How sinful we are, what wickedness lurks in the depths of our hearts. And nevertheless, you've applied the blood of Jesus to us. So there is no one we cannot serve. There's no risk that we will not take to take a stand and declare without compromise that in Jesus, the one who bows the knee to him will be free and free indeed. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake. God's people said, amen. like to know how to have a personal relationship with that last lamb, with the Lord Jesus Christ, then talk to any of us at any of the doors, but Pastor Tim will be here to my left in a private room to talk to you as well. Would you stretch forth your hands for God's blessing? May the God of grace sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless until the coming and appearing of our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. He equip you with everything good for doing his work through Jesus Christ before all ages, now and forevermore. This one sends you forth with his power 
and his peace. Amen.